So turn your Bibles to James chapter number 2 tonight. James chapter number 2. I do want to thank Pastor Yeomans for the opportunity to preach tonight. I'm uh, convinced, though, that he had an ulterior motive. I'm convinced that he gave me tonight because he knew it's the hardest night to preach to. Because it's the chili cook-off. You know that there are at least like 12 to 16 crockpots full of chili. They're warming. They're ready. The people sitting on the back can probably smell it, you know, kind of wafting through the auditorium. So that's why he chose to give me tonight. I, uh, I'll let you know right now I don't have a chili in the contest, I was going to pick up Wendy's chili. I told a couple people and just put it into a crock pot, throw my name on it, and just <laughs> kind of see how I did. But I figured it uh, wasn't a good idea to lie to the whole church the night that I was going to preach. So uh, I didn't do that tonight. But James chapter number two, we're going to get to the text in just a minute. Um, but we have been studying through the book of James with the teenagers next door on Sunday nights. Uh, so we've made it all the way through James chapter 1 in the last, I think, about five weeks. So I kind of wanted to give you guys a bit of a rundown of what we've been learning, kind of catch us all up to speed as we move into the second chapter tonight. Uh, James is a book of practical truths for Christian living. I had a teacher at school, some of you know him, Pastor Jim Shetler. He often refers to James as the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's just full of truths, daily truths that can help us to live. It's, it's written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, and he's writing it to Christian people. Alistair Begg said this, James isn't a book about how to become a Christian, but rather a book about how to behave like a Christian. We're not talking tonight about how to obtain salvation or how to get saved, but we're understanding that this book is written to people who are saved. The first couple words tell us that, and so we understand that now that we have this faith, what are we supposed to do with it? Now that we become children of God, now that we are Christians, how are we supposed to act? And that's what James is targeting. And at the end of James chapter 1, we have some very famous verses that teach us some important lessons that I would like to just quickly cover. Uh, first, we see a really cool illustration of a mirror. A mirror. The end of James chapter 1, it talks about a man who looks into his, uh, a, a glass or a mirror and sees his natural face, like how your face would look when you wake up in the morning, and how he sees that he needs to make some changes, but he doesn't make any changes, and the, the Bible kind of gives us the picture of that's a, a, a Christian who hears the word, but doesn't do anything about it, and it challenges us to be not just a hearer of the word, but a doer. It's not just enough to know or to hear God's word, but we're supposed to love and to live God's word, and then we have a second reminder right at the end of chapter one, and this is a, an imp a well-known passage, a well-known verse when James is teaching the believers about what is pure religion and undefiled, he says, hey, you've, you've got this religion, you've got this doctrine, you've, you've, you've obtained this set of beliefs, but what does it look like to have a pure and a complete religion? And he gives us three warnings. At the end of James chapter 1, I'm just going to read two verses, James 1, 26 and 27. The Bible says this, If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his own tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Here's the three warnings he gives us just quickly. He says, hey, watch your speech, watch your service, and watch your spotlessness. He said, if you can't control your tongue, your religion is in vain. And he says, how can you say that you have faith if we don't take care of the widows and the fatherless and serve those who are less fortunate than ourselves? But he says, while we're doing that, let's remember that we are in the world but not of the world. 
We are to remain different, set apart, holy. Here's the message. He's saying, hey, get your hands dirty, but keep your hearts clean. That's what he's saying. The whole theme of this passage as we move into chapter 2 is simply this. Faith in action. Faith in action. And that's what we want to look at tonight is another aspect of faith in action. Remember, it's not about obtaining faith, but rather how do we act once we've got it. So let's read together James chapter number 2. Let's read the first nine verses together. Start in verse number 1. The Bible says this. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say unto the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are, are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme the worthy name by the which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Let's, play, let's pray tonight. Father, as we come now to your word and as we come now to this chance to open it, I ask that you would speak to our hearts. I'd ask that your spirit would make this passage come alive, that you would challenge us. Lord, I pray that you would allow all of us to be open to your leading, that you'd allow us to be honest with ourselves and with you, that the scripture would speak to our hearts and that we'd be willing to make a change, that we'd leave here different and that our time would not be in vain. We do thank you for your word and what it challenges us. Pray you'd help me to be clear, help me to say exactly what you'd want me to say tonight, and we'll thank you. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, I'd like to preach the message to you that I've entitled, Faith and Favoritism. Faith and Favoritism. I want us to see as we jump into the lesson tonight, number one, we see in scripture, this passage, a bold exclamation. A bold exclamation. Look in verse number one again with me of chapter two. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Scripture makes it very clear right off the start that favoritism or partiality has no place in the church of God. There is no room for favoritism along with faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, it sort of puts those things at complete odds against each other. There's no room for partiality among the body and the bride of Christ. And it's funny, James actually mentions it again in verse number 8 and 9. He says, verse 9, he says, But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin. Makes it very clear in this passage. It is a sin. It is completely opposed to what God wants for us and for your life to have favoritism or partiality with our faith. So let's quickly define what that isn't before we try to define what it is. Favoritism or partiality with our faith is not giving honor to whom honor is due. It is not choosing to disrespect or to not respect those who deserve it. When studying scripture, it's so important that we study scripture as a whole. We look at the entirety of scripture. We look at God throughout Genesis to Revelation. And it's important to do that to be able to understand it properly. 
We could look at just this passage and say, see, we aren't supposed to be partial or, or have favoritism or have respect of persons. You could draw a conclusion of the fact that maybe we aren't supposed to have church leadership. Or maybe we shouldn't have directors or deacons. Or maybe we shouldn't respect our elders. Or we shouldn't invite members of our parliament into our church and, and honor them and respect them. But if we look at Scripture as a whole, we would see that that's completely contrary to what we see in the rest of Scripture. To say that would be in contradiction to Romans 13, where it tells us to honor and to respect those who have been put in authority in government. It would be contrary to Ephesians 5, which tells us to obey our parents, children. Contrary to 1 Peter chapter 5, which talks about honoring and respecting the elder. The younger give honor to the elder. So we see that that's not what the Bible's talking about here. The root word of the term uh, respect of persons can help us to understand exactly what the Bible's talking about here. And it kind of is made up of two words. The first word is face or external appearance. And the second word is to receive or to choose or to take. Here's the idea. Don't choose or receive based on external appearance or circumstances. Us as a church choosing who we receive or give favor to based on external circumstances or appearances is sin. And the Bible makes no bones about it. If we're choosing who to receive based on external appearances, then we're living in sin. We see this term in Colossians chapter 3. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of that inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there's no respect, of, no respect of persons. God's saying in Colossians, he's saying, hey, when you serve your masters, do it unto the Lord. And know that when you do things right or you do things wrong, either way you're going to get the reward for your works. Similar to what we heard this morning with Pastor Yeoman's message. There is a consequence for our actions, right or wrong. And those consequences are not changed based on who we are or external, external appearances. We see this phrase again in Acts chapter number 10. If you'll remember, Acts chapter number 10 is the first time that the gospel has been preached to the Gentiles. Peter is given a vision at night where there's the clean animals and the unclean animals. And God reveals to him that we're no longer just preaching the gospel of the kingdom to the Jewish people. No, no, no. We're preaching the gospel to the whole world, Gentiles too. And Peter says this in verse number 34. He says, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. We see clearly that God deals fairly, evenly, and consistently with all men. He died for all, he loves all, he rewards all, and he judges all. There's no partiality based on race, riches, or anything else with God. And there shouldn't be in his church or with his children. God is a fair, a just, and an impartial kind of a God. And aren't we thankful that he is? Because tonight we sit in a room with people from all different kinds of backgrounds, with all different kinds of races, all different kinds of histories, all different kinds of social economic statuses. And yet we sit here tonight under the unity of Christ, a picture of our community, a picture of the bride of Christ. That's who we are. There's no partiality with God. It's a bold exclamation that that is sin and it has no place among our ranks. But secondly, I'd like you to see tonight that there's a biblical example. A bold exclamation, but also a biblical example. Look at verse number two. 
For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool, are ye then not partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? James gives the, the church this awesome visual, biblical illustration. I want us to think about that tonight, kind of put ourselves in that story. He says two men walk into the assembly, walk into the church. One man is very sharp. He's got on some, some nice, maybe a nice suit. He looks sharp. His suit's been dry cleaned, you know. He's well groomed. He looks clean. He smells nice. He has got a nice pair of shoes on. He's got some expensive looking jewelry. Looks like a man with some sort of status. He's the kind of guy that just demands respect when he walks through the door. He's a sharp man. Maybe he even has a sharp family. We don't know. And he walks through the door, and right behind him, a guy walks in who couldn't be more opposite. He's walked in just off the street. He smells like he's been living on the street. Perhaps he even has his belongings with him. It's been days or maybe weeks since he's had a shower, since he's had a place to stay. His clothes are tattered, they're torn, they smell. They walk in together. And in the example, the church says, hey, to the rich man, the man of status, they say, hey, come on, come sit at the front. we got a nice padded pew, a prominent place in the assembly. They give him preferential treatment. They want him to be sitting near the front where everyone can see. And they say to the man who looks poor, they say, hey, you can sit at the back or maybe even under my foot as a footstool. Or you can just stand. We don't want to ruin the, the carpet or ruin the nice padded pews with your, your clothes. Now you'd say, Pastor Levi, that's crazy. We would never do that at Bible Baptist, Church, Bible Baptist Church. And I would say, I believe and I hope that you're right. But here's the danger in a biblical example like this. We write it off and say, it doesn't apply to us. We would, we would never do that. We would never tell someone just because they look rich, you can sit in the front pew and make someone who looks poor stand at the back. And I would say you're right. But just because our partiality or our favoritism doesn't manifest itself in that way doesn't mean it's not real in our hearts. And so we must be very careful to look at this illustration with the right mindset. It still applies to us. Because you see, with the same mind that we ration that this is not something we struggle with is the same mind that we justify this, avoiding shaking someone's hand because they just kind of look rough. Perhaps avoiding them in the lobby altogether because they're not someone we know or they're not someone we would associate with. Targeting those who look sharp or solid to think that they would bring or add something to the body of Christ, a great prospect for Christ. Being frustrated by those who don't look or dress a certain way, what we would deem appropriate for the house of God. Looking down on children or teens who are new to church or don't have a family in church or perhaps just don't know the etiquette that we know of how to behave in church? How about giving less time, energy, love, or attention to those who we deem don't need or don't deserve it? You see, those are things that can easily creep up in our ranks, but yet we'll look at a biblical illustration like this and be so quick to pass it away. When I was growing up, I loved to read. I was a huge reader. I wish I loved to read now as much as I used to love to read back then. I don't. But I used to just read all the time. I didn't grow up in a house where we had like video games and things like that. So I was just, just constantly reading. I was a nerd. You can, you can call me, you can make fun of me. I'm a total nerd. My parents used to, you know, come in when it was bedtime and I would fake to be asleep and I'd have a, a book and a flashlight under my pillow. And they'd leave and I'd wake back up, you know, I'd be reading, trying to get the story done. I just love to read. 
And because I was reading so much and I learned to read at a pretty young age, and so you start to just kind of read everything in your house. You know, you're going to the library all the time. Like every good Christian kid, you know, hang out at the library. I'm getting all the books. And so you start to read things that are maybe a little bit uh, more advanced than, than are like not really made for your, your, uh, your age category, your stage. Maybe they're kind of stretching your vocabulary and your understanding a little bit. So I was pretty young. I'd say maybe like in grade two. And I read this book, and it was called The Jacket. And The, the Jacket was a, a children's novel, and it discussed racial prejudice among two boys in a public school. And so I was reading this book, and i got to be honest with you, I didn't know what racial meant, and I didn't know what prejudice meant. But I could clearly see from the story that being prejudiced was a bad thing, and that you shouldn't be prejudiced, and it affected the way we treated other people. And so I, I didn't really understand it all, but I remember going to my parents one night, and just being broken up inside, and being so frustrated. And I went to my parents, and they could see, you know, visibly I was upset, something was wrong. I'm like, man, what's going on? I looked at my parents, I said, Mom, Dad... Am I prejuiced? They're like, what are, you, what are you talking about? I'm like, am I prejuiced? And I'm almost in tears at this point. Like, we have, we have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like, well, I don't know what it means, but I don't want to be prejuiced. And so eventually the whole story comes out. They read the book. I realize that it's prejudice. I have no idea what that word is. Obviously, I can't even say it. <laughs> And, you know, as I was studying this passage and thinking about prejudice in the church, immediately that story came back to my mind. And I share it for, for just this one reason. I believe that our attitude towards this text should be the same as my attitude was towards that book. Saying, Lord, is there any prejudice in me? Is there any partiality in me? Is there any favoritism in me? Not quick to dismiss, not quick to pass off the lesson. But with a tender heart, a soft heart, looking at Scripture and saying, Lord, if there's any bit of favoritism, partiality in the way that I treat others, the way that I love others, would you show it to me? And that's my challenge to you, church, tonight, that you would be honest with yourself and with God. That you'd let Scripture speak to your heart because we can be so quick to pass off a biblical example. We ought to have the same attitude that David had in Psalm 51 where he said, search me, O God, search me. Try my thoughts. Know my thoughts. Try my ways. See if there's any wicked way in me. That's the attitude we ought to have when it comes to a, a passage and an illustration like this. Lord, would you search me? Would you show me? Would you make it clear to me? Lord, I don't want any sort of partiality, favoritism, which we know to be sin, to take place in my heart. And I don't want it to be, have a place in this church. So we see there's a bold exclamation. We see that there's a biblical example. But lastly, we see that there's a biased evaluation. A biased evaluation. You see, when we have a wrong attitude in our heart, a prejudice or a favoritism spirit, it always leads to wrong evaluations or judgments of other people. And that's something we need to be so careful of in our own lives. And Scripture gives us some warnings, and I believe we can see four evaluations, four judgments that we need to be careful of here in the text. The first one I would say is simply this. We need to be careful of self-judgments. I'm not talking about judging ourselves. I'm talking about making ourselves the judge. Look at verse number four. Scripture says, Are ye not then partial in yourselves and have become judges of evil thoughts? Be very careful of making yourself the judge or authority of others. When we do that, we take the place of authority that has been given to God. We usurp his authority. 
We make ourselves a judge to others, and we put ourselves in direct opposition to God and his word. When we despise the poor, like the scripture says, we are despising those who God has a plan to use, those who God loves, those who God died for. We are literally hating or despising or passing judgment falsely upon people who God died for. It's like what Pastor Yeoman said this morning. God has a powerful and unique purpose and plan for all of his children. And it is not our place to make judgments. Be very careful about self-judgments. But number two, we see that there's the status judgment. A judgment of status, just like we saw in the story. One man clearly had a higher level of social status, an economic status, a, a place in society that was well-respected, and, and one man simply didn't. And we can be so careful or so easy to make a status judgment. Do you remember when Jesus was based upon his status? You see, the Jews were looking for a certain kind of Messiah. They were waiting for a Messiah, and unfortunately, they still are. You see, because the Messiah that came, Jesus Christ, was not the Messiah that they were looking for. I thought of this, and I don't mean to make this political, but it kind of reminds me of what we see sometimes in the States, where it's like the not my president. They're saying, not my Messiah. You see, because they had a certain type of Messiah they were looking for. They were under political and physical bondage, slavery from the Roman Empire. They were looking for this political Messiah to come in with his chariots and his army and to free them and to set them free and to change their life physically. And Jesus came in a manger. He came eating and drinking and he was not the guy that they were looking for. He was not the king, the Messiah that they were looking for. They passed judgment based on his status. This is just a simple guy from Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? This is just a carpenter's son. We see that more clearly than ever than when Jesus went home to his home city. In Matthew 13, in verse 54, the Bible says, And when he was come, that's Jesus, into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished, and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? And then listen to this. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And get this, verse number 58, And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus went home to his own people, his own country, and because of the status that they placed on him, he could do no mighty works there. There's no great miracles recorded at home for Jesus because the people looked at him as simply a man of no status, just the carpenter's son. How could this man teach us? How could this man preach to us? How could this man get this wisdom? Who does he think he is? He's just one of us. And we can be so quick to do the same thing, judge people based on their status. There's no place for that in the church. Verse number five says, says this, look at chapter two, verse number five. Hearken, my beloved brethren, Hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. God says, he said, he chose the poor things of this world. He tells us not many rich, not many wise. In fact, he says it's harder for a rich man to go to the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. You see, God shows the poor, the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. But yet sometimes we are so quick to judge on status just like they did to Jesus. 
I find it really funny. Look at verse number six, the second part of verse number six and verse seven with me. This is just something that's interesting to me. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? He's saying, aren't the rich people in society the ones that are criticizing, blaspheming your God? Aren't they the ones that are putting you on trial for your faith anyways? Why would you have more respect for them than for the poor and broken person who's trying to come to God? We can say, yeah, that's crazy, but i got to be honest with myself. We can criticize celebrities. We can criticize them for their openness about how much they hate God or against God. We can say they're an evil people. They, they have this platform and they're wicked and we can criticize them. But if they walk through the back door, would we give them more honor than we would give someone who walked in the street, off the street of St. Thomas? Just because of their social status, their status? It's a convicting thought for me. You see, we can't be judging people off of their status. We can't be judging people ourselves. But third, I want you to notice this. We shouldn't be making surface judgments. Surface judgments. You see, we see in the biblical example again that the church made a, a judgment based on these two men's external appearance. There's no record of them talking to them. There's no record of them uh, getting to know them or asking them about their life or, or seeing their testimony. No, it's just all based on an external experience. Appearance. And so many times we can do the same thing. Be careful of skin-deep judgments. Because like we, we, we all know, we learned it from a kid, right? Don't judge a book by its cover. We know that, but sometimes it's easy to allow that attitude to creep into the church. And we're so quick to judge people based on just what we see on the outside. We base our opinions of them. We base our love for them based on what we see on the outside. I think we see this more clearly in Scripture than any other place in 1 Samuel chapter 16. You know the story King uh, Samuel has been sent to anoint the next king. He goes to uh, Jesse's house. And Jesse has some sons and he calls in all the sons and he, he's looking for the next king of Israel to anoint. And he starts with the firstborn. You know, he's strong and he's sharp and he's strapping. From the outside, he looks like everything you'd ever want in a king. Kind of like King Saul. And, and he goes to anoint him. Surely this is the anointed one. Surely this is who God has chosen. God's like, no, it's not him. Goes to the next born, you know, again, a good-looking guy, pretty sharp, probably talented, a lot of skills. Surely this is the one who God has chosen. No, it's not him. And he goes through son after son after son and finally gets to the point where he's like, are there any more? Like, well, we have one more, brother, but he's out in the field. He's watching the sheep, and we know it to be David. And David comes in, and God says, no, this is the one. And we see in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance or the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. God is not looking for those who look like they have it all together. And you know what, church? That's an encouraging thing to us. God's not looking for your, your physical stature. He's not looking for your talents. He's not looking for your ability. He's not looking for people who are good looking. He's not looking for people with the right kind of background, with the right sort of heritage. No, he's looking for people whose heart is perfect towards him. The sacrifices that the Lord accepts is a broken and a contrite spirit. He searches the, the whole earth looking for people's heart is perfect towards him. It doesn't matter what your talents are. It doesn't matter what your ability is. It doesn't matter what your past is or your heritage or your family. None of that matters. What matters is your heart. And so church, be so careful to make judgments on others based on 
skin or appearance or what we see because we know that we don't see what God sees. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. And the last kind of judgment that we see in our passage tonight is just simply this, a sinful judgment. Look at verse number four again. Are ye not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? When I first read this, i got to be honest, I was a little bit confused. How could we be judges of other people's thoughts? That's what I was thinking. But in studying it, really it's not the fact that we're judges of evil thoughts. We're judges with evil thoughts. Evil thoughts affect our reasoning and our judgment so that we make false judgment or pass false judgment upon others. We see that in verse number 8 and 9. If you fulfill the royal law to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law of transgressors. If you allow, if you allow status, if you allow yourself and your own opinions, if you allow people's appearance or their surface to affect the way that you love them, the way that you treat them, then we've turned into sinful judges, judges of evil thoughts. Judges who've allowed our history, our baggage, our sinful mind to affect the way that we treat others. That's exactly what Jesus is warning us about, what James is writing about here in this passage. And it's so simple, he boils it all down to that great commandment, that you love your neighbor as yourself. You want to do well? Do you want to overcome it? Love your neighbor as yourself. We don't have to be sinful judges with sinful thoughts. But be careful of allowing those evil or those wrong philosophies to affect the way that we see the world. So we've seen a bold exclamation. We've seen a biblical example. And then we've seen a biased evaluation. But in closing, I'd like us to look just at verse number one one more time. Go back to verse number one. Chapter 2, verse number 1. I want to notice a couple of words that we kind of skimmed over earlier. The Bible says this, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. When I first read it, I immediately thought, why are the words the Lord of glory in this passage? Because if you, if you see, you could take it out and it reads just fine. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect of persons. In fact, it kind of reads better, just nice and smooth. Why, why did he put those words in there? What, what's their importance? The Lord of glory. Well, here's what I believe, and, I, and hear me when I say this. This is my opinion, and I'm going to show you why I believe that biblically. But here's why I believe that those words are important to this passage. If we think of that word glory, and you look at that word glory throughout Scripture, when people saw the glory of God, they often had a similar and a unique reaction. Think about the shepherds in Luke chapter number 2 as we think about the Christmas story. The glory of God shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. They were sore afraid. Paul in Acts 22, he's giving his testimony on the steps, and he's sharing about how God met him on the road to Damascus. And in verse number six, it says, And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light about me. And I fell unto the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why per persecutest thou me? And we know that Paul saw the glory of God. And in fact, we know it was so glorious that he was blind for a few days. 
He fell on his face before God. Think about Isaiah chapter number 6. I want to read a few verses to you from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain did he cover his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And here's Isaiah's testimony. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. You see, when you see the glory of God, your reaction is always to fall on your face before him. No man can see the glory of God, even when he just showed his hinder parts. Remember in the Old Testament, their face shone with the glory of God. And every time we see men coming in contact with the glory of God in Scripture, they fall on their face in humble reverence, in worship. They bow before God. They understand how great God is and how awful we are. You're never more understanding of how much of a sinner you are than, you're look, when, than when you're looking at the glory of God. When you come in face to face with his perfection, with his holiness, with his love, with his faithfulness, we realize what sinners we are. And can I tell you what it's really hard to do when you're on your face before God? It's really hard to judge others. It's really hard to compare ourselves to others because we're all at the foot of the cross. It's really hard to compare ourselves with others when we're so focused on the glory of God. When we're on our knees and bowed before our, our faces before the Lord, it's really hard to pass judgment on others. So I believe that James puts those words in right in the beginning of the text to remind us, hey, we serve a God who is glorious, the Lord of glory, the only one who deserves glory. For his glory we are created for his glory, we are left upon this earth. One day, we'll have a glorious body. We'll spend the rest of our life singing and praising and worshiping his glory, seeing it face to face. His glory will be the light of heaven. If we are so in tune to the glory of God, we won't be in tune to the glory of others. We won't be passing judgment or giving status or favoritism or partiality to others in the community in our church. Because we'll realize there's only one deserving of the praise. There's only one deserving of the glory. We're all sinners. It doesn't matter what race we come from, what riches we have, what we look like. What matters is what's our heart like? What's our attitude towards the Lord of glory? I hope the Bible Baptist Church will be the church that lives out a loving faith, a serving faith, and an impartial faith. I hope we'd never be so focused on the outward appearance that we would treat people poorly, that we would never be so focused on others' externals that we would fail to love them the way that Christ commands us to love them. You want to love others? you got to first love God. When we see the glory of God, when we love the Lord our God with all our hearts and soul and mind, then we will love others. Church, maybe tonight God spoke to your heart about some partiality. Maybe he brought to light some favoritism some prejudice in your own heart. Tonight, maybe it's time to make a decision to treat others the way we would want to be treated, to give to others the treatment that we would want, to treat others consistently, to love others fairly, 
not based on their status, not based on their surface, not based on ourselves, but based on the fact that God loved them enough to die for them. I had a teacher at college who always used to say this. He said, everybody is somebody that my best friend loved enough to die for. And if we will really live with that perspective, we will treat people so, so differently than we do. Church, let's be careful that this does not become a place of favoritism. The scripture makes it so clear. Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with respect of persons. Let's pray.